are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Greetings and good afternoon, everybody. So pleased that you could join me. I don't know if it's afternoon for you, but my name is David Guzik, and right here it is 12 noon Pacific time on the West Coast of the United States, where I'm here in a little office building, kind of just little room uh, out in our back garden. And from this place, whenever I'm in town, I do a Thursday afternoon question and answer time for our Enduring Word YouTube channel. So if that's you and you're joining us here today, I'm very pleased that you could make it. It's great to see you. And again, I would just say welcome. Happy to have you along. Here's how we normally do it. We normally do it by beginning with a lead question. And then after the lead question, uh, we take your questions, things that are submitted by you uh, in the side chat. And by the way, if you're part of our TWR360 audience, we want to say welcome. We love the work of Trans World Radio 360. Uh, TWR, Trans World Radio, has been a ministry doing a fantastic work for the Lord for so many years, and we're just very, very pleased that they're part of uh, what we do here on Thursday afternoons. So welcome, our TWR360 audience. And um, I do just want to say, before we get into the lead question, and I'll say this very quickly right now, and I'm going to say it again after our lead question when we may have a few more people with us. We're doing another giveaway today. So here's our prizes today. Biggest giveaway we've ever had. First of all, we're giving away an Enduring Word mug. Okay, that'll be prize number one, top prize. Enduring Word mug, you cannot buy this in any store. We don't sell this merchandise. We just give it away to people here and there. So uh, you'll get an Enduring Word mug if you're number one on our list. And then after giving away the Enduring Word mug, we're going to give away five copies of my book. Now, that's to five different individuals. We're not going to give five copies to one individual. But to five different individuals, we're going to give a copy of our book, Standing in Grace. This is just a book that grew out of a time in my life when God was teaching me a lot about his grace. And uh, I wrote it many years ago, and we've also translated it into German, and we've translated it into Spanish. But we're not giving away the Spanish and the German versions today. We did that the last couple of weeks Today, we're going to give away a copy of Standing in Grace to five individuals. Here's what you got to do to enter into our contest. We trust you've already subscribed because you won't be able to participate in the live chat unless you are a subscriber. But uh, what you need to do is subscribe to the channel and then uh, just let us know your location, Uh, country, state, city, whichever you prefer. Put that into the live chat so we know where you're viewing from, and we're very pleased to put you in then the random entry. Those winners are going to be randomly selected and announced at the end of today's Q&A. So listen carefully. You have to be present until the end when we announce the winners. Otherwise, we're going to have no way to get your postal address and know where to send you either the book, Standing in Grace, if you're one of the five winners for the book, or our top winner will get an enduring word mug. So can't believe how much stuff we're getting rid of today or giving away today, but I'm very pleased that you could be part of it. Now, uh, before I get to our uh, uh, next thing, I do also want to say, now hopefully I'm going to repeat this a couple times during our hour together. Next week, 
uh, just in celebration of Christmas to make it a little bit special, our last show before Christmas, my wife, Inga Lil, will be joining me. And together, we're going to do the Q&A next week, which is a lot of fun. And I hope you can join us. I don't, maybe we'll give away something as well. I don't know. That's up to the staff. We'll get on with that. Okay, let's get on to today's lead question. Today's lead question is simply, when did Jesus know? In other words, at what age did Jesus understand his self-sacrifice on the cross? And today's question comes to us from Scott. And Scott asked this basic question, when was Jesus aware of his mission to die for humanity's sins? as a toddler, a young teen, or an adult? And again, Scott, I want to thank you for that question because it's a great question. And people have asked this from time to time. And I think that there is a, a, a biblical answer to it, or at least uh, the suggestion of an answer biblically. Uh, but I think it's a fascinating question, isn't it? You, you see, let's understand what happened in the incarnation. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Eternal is in existence, creator of all things. God the Son added humanity to his deity and was conceived in Mary's womb as a miracle of the Holy Spirit, not through the normal method of conception at all. By a miracle of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was conceived in the Virgin Mary's womb and then he was born in Bethlehem, of course. This is the Christmas season, the time of year when we remember that. And he grew up into a man. And at 30 years age, of age, the Bible tells us that he began the three years of his ministry, culminating in his death on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of his people and to rise again from the dead in triumph over sin and death. Now, the question is, when was Jesus aware of his destiny, his mission, his ministry? Was it as a little boy, a toddler, as Scott suggested in his question? Remember, Scott said as a toddler, a young teen, or an adult. Was it as a, as a teen, as a boy, as an adult? When did Jesus know who he was and what his destiny was? Jesus speaking in reference to his humanity. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a painting out I just did a little bit of research on this painting. Apparently, this painting is titled Destiny. And uh, 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 just from the little bit of research, it seems that the artist is unknown. It's an anonymous artist. If that's not the case, then I apologize to whoever you are who was the maker of this artwork. But he here's this little uh, painting or whatever it is. It, it pictures Joseph at work in his carpenter shop. And there's Jesus as a young child, what, three, four years old. And he's holding a nail. And you see that the shadow that's cast upon Jesus in this artist's depiction, in the painter's depiction, the, the shadow is of a cross. And of course, Jesus is holding nails. There he is with Joseph in the woodworking shop. Well, you know, that painting is very suggestive of an idea that the shadow of the cross cast itself over the entire life and ministry of Jesus. But when, so to speak, was Jesus aware of that shadow? Well, let's kind of talk about this. Let's look at this. And, and the answer we can gain from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 46. Let me read that with you here. We read this by saying, Now it was so, uh, 
So it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Well, let me give you a little background here to uh, the Gospel of Luke, this section. This happened when Jesus was about 12 years old. And his family had done, as they would often do in obedience to the law, they would travel, they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover so that they could be at the temple and all its associated services for that feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And so Jesus went in the midst of uh, this great people with his family. And we read right there in verses 46 and 47 that after three days, they found him in the temple. Now, according to William Barclay, During the Passover season, it was customary for the Sanhedrin to meet openly in the temple courts to discuss religious and theological questions for the general public. Now, if that's true, then it's very likely here in Luke chapter 2 that the boy Jesus, 12 years old, was part of this. So for three days, a 12-year-old Jesus discussed God's word with the elders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the council. And they were astonished, not not only the Sanhedrin, but all those onlookers or listeners on, they were astonished, verse 47 says, with his understanding and answers. And may I say that that is a particular interest when we realize the impressive intellectual insight and analysis of Jewish rabbis, uh, not only today, but of that time. It really was impressive. This was something like a middle school child discussing physics with a rocket scientist. Now, of course, you could say that Jesus had a unique advantage here. He had a special relationship with the author of God's word, with with God the Father himself. Okay, so now continuing on here in Luke, we read, So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. So there, uh, Joseph and Mary are uh, upset. They're wondering what's going on. Jesus, why did you do this? We we didn't know where you were. And and so now starting at verse 49, Jesus is going to explain what he did to his parents and why he did it. Okay, here's the explanation. Verse 49 and 50. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. You see, Jesus made it very clear that he needed to be about his father's business. That's the phrase that the 12-year-old Jesus used uh, in replying to his parents. Now, in that day, There was nothing more natural than for a son to take up his father's business. And Jesus did follow in Joseph's footsteps as a carpenter. But his words here show that he had at the very least a beginning of the understanding of the unique relationship that he had to his God and father in heaven. Jesus understood Joseph, he's my adoptive father, but I have a father in heaven and I have a special relationship with him. I need to be about my father's business and that's why I'm here at the temple. Now, it's impossible to say when 
in the context of the self-imposed limitations of his humanity, Jesus realized who exactly he was and what he was sent to do. But it was early. Maybe this isn't was when it began. I would say it was fairly developed by this time. Jesus understanding that there was a unique role that he had in the business, so to speak, of God the Father. And and you could say that verse 49, uh, again, let's take a look at that. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? That those are the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels. Now, it's implied that Joseph and Mary were quite surprised at this. And they did not fully comprehend or maybe had forgotten the special relationship that he had with God the Father. And it means that this was probably an item of continuing instruction. Okay, now, verse 50 says, they did not understand the statement which they spoke. In the Judaism of that day, a boy would begin to learn his father's trade at about 12. And Jesus was fulfilling this by instructing the teachers in the temple. Okay, let's just take a look at the next couple verses here, verses 51 and 52. It says, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So growing up in Nazareth, Jesus would mature in boyhood and then in his young adulthood. He would fulfill all the responsibilities expected of an eldest son, and then at some time, Joseph disappeared from the scene, probably died, and Joseph became the man of the family, so to speak. He worked his trade, supported his family, loved his God, and he proved himself to be faithful in a thousand small things before Jesus ever formally entered his appointed ministry. But don't miss it. He was subject to his parents. He was obedient to them. The knowledge of who he was and what he had come to do did not make Jesus proud or haughty. Those would be sins. And Jesus never sinned. He was subject to his parents. And he, verse 52 says, that he increased in wisdom. He increased in stature and he increased in favor with God and men. But note this, Jesus was not born a superman. He developed as he grew. Look, uh, people can't resist thinking about, I'm looking over for a book I wish I would have gotten off my shelf. Uh, it, it's a book of the New Testament Apocrypha, and it contains some of the infancy gospels. You can find these online. These are fanciful uh, fictions of what people thought Jesus was like as a boy, written several hundred years after the New Testament was written. And in these infancy gospels, one of them says that Jesus was born speaking. Hello, mother. I am the Messiah. Welcome, father. No, it was nothing like that. He wasn't born a superman. Subject to the limitations of humanity, willingly subject, not subject by nature, but by a willing heart, because he's also God, he developed 
as he grew. One commentator says that he passed through a natural but perfect spiritual and physical development. At every stage, he was perfect for that stage. So when Jesus was a toddler, he wasn't perfect as an adult, but he was perfect as a toddler. When Jesus was a young boy, he wasn't perfect as an adult, but he was perfect as a young boy. And so through each stage. So Scott, we don't know when it was exactly, but it seems that it was before Jesus was 12 years old. It's also likely that Jesus grew in his understanding of his mission and destiny after that. He would understand more and more. Now, in Scott's question, he asked, was it as a toddler, a young teen, or an adult? I would say, Scott, that it was as a pre-teen that Jesus developed enough intellectually, emotionally, spiritually in his humanity Of course, in his divinity, none of that needed to be developed, but in his humanity, he grew and developed as those things and came to an understanding of who he was and what his destiny was. Thank you for that question, Scott. Uh, Great question. And again, thank you for it. All right, let me get back down to our giveaway for today. Here's our giveaway. Uh, We are getting a giveaway uh, to our number one person, a enduring word coffee mug. Here it is. Nice cork base. And uh, it's nice. We've been giving these away. Now, again, I want you to know you can't buy these. We don't sell these on our website. Um, We just give them away to friends of the ministry. So we're going to give away one of these and we're going to give away to five different people, all by random drawing, a copy of my book, Standing in Grace. Look, I'm not, oh, this book's so great. I'm not here to say that, but I find this book helpful and some people find it helpful. Maybe you will too. So um, here's how to do it. You got to write in our uh, chat, our live chat right now. If you're part of our TWR 360 audience, you're going to have to pay a quick visit into our YouTube audience and and leave uh, your, your screen name. Of course, your screen name will come up. But you'll also have to uh, let us know where you're viewing from, country, state, city. Uh, we just we love hearing about our viewers all over the world. And then um, in about ten minutes before our program ends, so what is that? Uh, a little more than a half hour from right now, we're going to close the entries. We're going to select randomly six people. The first one's going to get the mug, and then five are going to get the uh, Standing in Grace book. And uh, we're going to randomly select those. But you got to stay around until the end so that we get your, you know that you won, and we get your contact information, and we can get your postal address so we can send you these things. Okay? I hope that's clear for everybody. So pleased that you could join us today. All right. Uh, I'm going to get to the questions in just a moment. I do want to announce for a second time, though, I think it's good to announce that next Thursday, the Thursday right before the Christmas holiday, my wife, Inga Lil, will join me on the Q&A. So you can bring her, as well as myself, uh, the questions you want to ask. And uh, that's going to be fun. It's always a better show when Inga Lil is on the show. Okay, so here we go now for our... Questions coming in on the live chat. The first one comes from Andrea, who asks, I just watched your first video on cessationism. It was so good. 
and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Would you say that cessationism is a false teaching? Okay, uh, Andrea is speaking about a series that we're releasing. I think we're releasing these videos on Saturdays. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, weekly we're going to... I did up a series of 10 videos, 10 reasons why cessationism is wrong. Now, of course, they're written... They're uh, put up there from my perspective. So I could say 10 reasons why I think cessationism is wrong, but I think that's just sort of obvious. So we're going to release 10 videos speaking of these 10 reasons why cessationism is wrong. We released the first one, I think, last Saturday, and uh, we'll release more of them as time goes on, uh, weekly, I think. And uh, Andrea is asking uh, if I think cessationism is a false teaching. Well, yes, I do. The teaching that certain gifts of the Spirit or the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, what some people call the sign gifts, the idea that those are no longer given by the Holy Spirit to his people, I think that that's a wrong teaching. And if you want to say wrong teaching, you could say false teaching. And so I just think that's how it is. So yes, yes, I do think it's a false teaching. I I would not call it a heresy. Okay, for me, and I know people differ with this, and there's some legitimate difference of opinion, but uh, I would not use the word heresy for that, even though I think it's a wrong teaching. I think it's, a, it's not rightly dividing the word of truth. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So even though I'm grateful for a lot of the heart and contributions of our cessationist brothers and sisters— uh, I don't agree with their understanding of those issues biblically, and uh, I'm just coming out with 10 reasons why I disagree with them. And Well, you can make with that what you want, and uh, you can listen to them and evaluate it for yourself. So that, that's one question I had here at the beginning. Okay, here's another question from Andrea. I don't know if this is the same Andrea or different Andrea, but here we go, who asks, uh, hello, pastor. This is maybe related to the topic. But I was watching your study of Hebrews 1. Can you explain God adding humanity to his deity? I was left a bit confused, thanks. Okay, Andrea, great. Thank you for that question. What do I mean by I say that Jesus in the incarnation added humanity to his deity? Andrea, let me make it clear exactly what I'm trying to emphasize with that. I'm trying to emphasize that the incarnation, when God became man— that it was not subtraction, it was addition. That's really what I'm getting at in that phrasing I'm using. Jesus didn't take away any of his divine nature. Friends, if you can stop being God, then you were never God to begin with. And if you can be less God than you were before, you were never God to begin with. Those things aren't there in the nature of God, period. Uh, God can't stop being God, and God can't be less God than he ever was. So it's important that we understand that a human nature was added to the divine nature. It was addition. And really, that's what I mean by that, Andrea, that a human nature was added to the divine nature. Jesus was truly God and truly man. Sometimes we put it like this, that he was 100% man and 100% God. Well, I, I, I don't think that technically speaking, that's the best way to phrase it 
because then you have a being that's 200%. And I, I don't know exactly how that works, but certainly we could say that Jesus was fully God and fully man or truly God and truly man. He wasn't a fake God or a lesser God, and he wasn't a fake man or a lesser man. No, he was truly God and truly man. And that's why we say that he added a human nature to his divine nature in the incarnation. So, Andrea, that's really what I'm getting out when I talk about that. I want people to think of the incarnation in terms of addition, not in terms of subtraction. Hope that that makes a little bit of sense to you. Okay, uh, next question comes from Adonis, who asks, what verses do you use to show that post-millennialism is false? Well, Adonis, a post-millennialism, and, and I know that you know this, but I'll say this for the uh, benefit of, of our audience who perhaps don't know this, is basically the idea that God will work through the church to establish a Christianized world. Now, that doesn't mean that absolutely every person on the face of the earth will be a Christian, but most of them will, <laughs> that the earth will be 70, 80, 90% Christian, that the world will be Christianized and God will do that work through the church. The nations will be Christianized because obviously if 70, 80, 90% of the population of each nation was Christian, then they would pass laws and do things in, in, in line with the Christian faith. So that's post-millennialism. And then after that state is achieved, then Jesus returns in glory. Now, what passage of scripture are you against it? I think that so much of the scriptures, let me just give a few of them that come to mind. First of all, the Bible describes the conditions of the world before the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And they're not conditions where everything's great, where the world is Christianized. It's, it's descriptions of judgment, of deception, of cataclysm. When Jesus Christ returns in glory in the book of Revelation, he's coming to conquer a Christ-resisting world. He's not coming to high-five, so to speak, a world that already almost predominantly believes in Jesus Christ. Just the way that the Bible describes the conditions of the world at the glorious return of Jesus Christ uh, it's a return of judgment. It's not a return to congratulate the church on doing such a fine job in Christianizing the world. So there's all sorts of passages that speak to that. But then the other main scriptural thing is, I think it has to do with the mission of the church or the mission of the establishment. The, the emphasis is that the establishment of the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God. Now, we absolutely believe, I absolutely believe, the kingdom of God is present on earth now and Jesus Christ reigns as king right now. Well, I believe that. But certainly, there is a greater aspect of the reign of Jesus to come and a greater expression of the reign of Jesus to come. Post-millennialists and pre-millennialists, and I, I suppose maybe not amillennialists, but post and pre certainly agree on that. That yes, the kingdom is present now, but there's a sense in which, in a greater sense, it's yet to come. 
in a, in a wholly fulfilled sense. I believe that the scriptures speak very clearly that the work of building that kingdom is on Jesus. He establishes it, not the church. Now, I know that my post-millennial brothers and sisters, they would be very adamant. No, no, no. Jesus is doing it. He's just doing it through the church. But I just don't see evidence of that scripturally. So those are two things that immediately come to mind. The many scriptures that speak of the dreadful condition of the world at the glorious return of Jesus Christ, number one. And then number two, the nature of the establishment of it being Jesus's work and not, so to speak, the work of Jesus through the church. So that, that, that's basically what I would say there, Adonis. Thank you for that question. Next question comes from Lily, who asks, uh, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God tested Abraham by asking him to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Number one, can God ask men to do something that is sinful? And number two, how could Abraham obey God's direction to sin? Lily, thank you for the question. Let me answer the first one. Can God ask men to do something that's sinful? Well, I I want you to understand, God did not allow Abraham to do that which was sinful. Did Abraham sacrifice Isaac? Yes, he did, because he was fully willing to make the sacrifice. The sacrifice had already happened in Abraham's heart and mind. It did not yet happen in his hand by plunging the knife into Isaac, but it happened in his heart, in his mind, in his being, in everything but his hand. That sacrifice was accomplished. Abraham did sacrifice Isaac, and God received it. So what God commanded Abraham to do, Abraham did, and God stopped him from doing any aspect that would have been sinful in it, that would have been the actual taking of Isaac's life. God wanted to make it clear in this dramatic way of saying, I only want the heart sacrifice of Isaac, of your son, not the actual one that you would do with your hand. God made that very clear because he wanted all humanity to know that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, does not accept human sacrifice such as the other gods of the nations do. He was making a distinction between that. Okay, so uh, what God asked Abraham to do, Abraham did, and God stopped him from any aspect that would have been sinful. That's one aspect. Here's the second aspect. How could Abraham obey God's direction? Very interesting. Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, points out that Abraham was able to do this because he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham believed that with all of his heart, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's why he was willing to do it. And so Abraham knew. Abraham knew this because God had promised that he would have descendants through Isaac and Isaac had not yet had any descendants. So Abraham understood, based on the reliability of God's promises, that Isaac had to live, at least until he had some descendants. And so he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's how Abraham uh, was able to do this. Okay, thank you for that question there, Lily. All right, 
before we get on to the next question, let me give one more announcement because in about 20 minutes, at 10 minutes to the hour, we're going to cut off our entries into our giveaway today. So what's our giveaway? Well, number one, first prize is an Enduring Word coffee mug. You can't buy this, but we give them away. So uh, that's number one winner. And then uh, our next five winners, five individuals, are going to get a free copy of Standing in Grace. By the way, if you're not one of our winners and you want to purchase it, uh, you can go to Amazon and purchase this book in either print or Kindle form. I think we might even have a link available in the live chat. I don't look at the live chat, but I believe it's probably there. Uh, a link available to our Amazon page where you can get that if you want to purchase it. But here's how you enter. Uh, you got to subscribe. Uh, and then in our live chat, we need your location. We already have your screen name. It's part of what you got to do is being a subscriber. We need your screen name. Uh, we need your location, country, state, city, what do you prefer? Obviously not a street address, but just let us know where you're viewing from. That enters you in. And then at 10 minutes before the hour, I'm going to let everybody know we've cut off entries. Our unbelievable team will get on it. And with a random name generator, we're going to tell you six names. Who wins the coffee mug and the five winners of Standing in Grace. And if you win, you got to hang around long enough to the end so that you know that you've won and you can give us your address. If you don't give us your address, then we can't send it anywhere. So stay around to the end to see if you've won. And then you can uh, you can receive the book or the coffee mug if you're one of today's winners. All right. Next question comes from uh, Tunol Banan, Shugotre. Hey, son. Good you. All right. Anyway, will everyone who follows Jesus be raptured? Jesus says that it's important for all who follow him to stay awake so they don't miss the rapture. What can we do wrong to miss it? Okay. Uh, I think that's a very interesting question. And uh, I, at times I've had differing opinions on this B because of the warnings that you mentioned of Jesus telling his people to be wait, to, to be ready, to be waiting, to be anticipating his return. So th there is the idea of what some people call the conditional rapture of the church. And the idea is that not every believer will be caught up to be with the Lord in the clouds, as is uh, spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that not every believer will, but only those believers who are, so to speak, walking rightly, however somebody would define that. Uh, I've toyed around with that. I, I would say on balance, uh, 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 I would say that on balance, no, I just think it's everybody who's actually born again. Look, th there's this interesting line in the Christian life, isn't there? We all understand that when a person is truly born again, when they are a believer, that there's still sin in their life. We're not free from the presence of sin until we're glorified, until we're resurrected and, and glorified with the Lord in heaven. That's when we're free from the very presence of sin. Until then, we, we will sin and fall short of the glory of God, hopefully less and less and less as we continue to grow in Christ. But sin will be present in us, among us, until we're glorified. Well, here, here's the question. How much sin or rebellion would show somebody not to be a Christian? There's no such thing as a sinless believer. 
But then how much can there be? And, and this is the, the critical question, isn't it? Uh, because that question is so difficult to answer. I would just say that it would be all believers. But it's a fascinating question and something that uh, Christians have had different opinions on as they've approached the issue. Uh, but thank you for that there, uh, dear viewer from Sweden. Okay, uh, next one from Eliza, who asks, Hello, Pastor David, your Enduring Word commentary has always been helpful for me during my Bible study. Thank you for that. Eliza, you're very welcome. And I just want to remind our viewers that I do have a commentary on the entire Bible, verse by verse, book by book, and some people find it helpful. If you find it helpful, praise the Lord for that. It's available absolutely free, no paywalls, no subscriptions, no Patreon, no membership levels, no VIPs. We just make it available to you, uh, absolutely free, and even with no paid ads on our website. So anyway, I hope that's helpful to some folks. Uh, but Eliza's question is this. Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 20 mentioned Gog and Magog. Is that the same Gog and Magog in those two books? Thank you, Pastor David. Eliza, you're asking a very difficult question, and I'm just getting you in there. I don't know. Okay, the invasion of Israel that's described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 by Gog and Magog, it might be the same as described in Revelation chapter 20, I would say I lean towards it not being the same. Now, listen, whenever we talk about end times events, whenever we talk about eschatology, that's the name under the heading of systematic theology for these things. Whenever we talk about these things, uh, we understand that there's controversy. There's disagreement among believers regarding it. So uh, I'm giving you my perspective on these things, even though I record, there's, there's good brothers and sisters who would disagree with me and disagree with the general kind of approach that I would take. Uh, but I'll just give you my understanding of this. Uh, I, I believe that Revelation chapter 20 takes place after the glorious return of Jesus Christ and after a thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus on the earth. It happens at the close of that millennial reign. I would say that the Gog and Magog invasion described in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 likely, though I can't say certainly, likely happens before the glorious return of Jesus. M maybe even before the last seven-year period, which is sometimes loosely called the tribulation. We're really only the last three and a half years are the great tribulation, so to speak, but we loosely call, or some people do, that seven-year period the tribulation. So, uh, I can't say for sure, but there seems to be enough difference between the two where I would think there's a case to be made that you're talking about two different things. Now, is it the same entities, Gog and Magog? Sure, why not? At least geographically speaking. Uh, but they're obviously different because they're separated by a very appreciable period of time. Elias, I'd recommend hit my commentary at Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, and I would be sure that I deal with it in some depth with that question. If you check out my commentary at EnduringWord.com or on our app, Man, we love the Enduring Word app, and we recommend it to you. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 38. It's funny. I got it right there in Ezekiel chapter 37. Check out our Enduring Word app. Uh, it's absolutely free on the Apple App Store or on Google Play. And man, we just love the advancements that are coming along in the app. Okay. Um, thank you for that, Eliza. 
Next question comes from Matt, who asks, my question for the day. Thanks, Matt. I think you're asking a question just about every week. You, uh, Adonis, um, a few others seem to ask questions just about every week. I love it. I love our Thursday afternoon family. So anyway, Matt's question is this. When did Samson start to fall? Was it only with Delilah or did it begin with his daily way of life? Thank you. Matt, you're spot on Samson's fall. Matt, doesn't it seem like Samson's fall was continual? Samson only seems to show any spiritual concern at the very end of his life when he's there blinded in between the pillars and, and he wants to do one last great thing and pray to God. I think that's the only prayer to God that we find Samson making. It's at the very end of his life. Isn't it strange? So no, I, I would say not only would Samson's, Samson's fall, did it not only not begin with Delilah, it seems to be continual throughout his, own, uh, his whole life. There are many points of compromise in Samson's life all along the way. He never really seems to have any kind of real living relationship with God up until when he cries out to God at the very end of his life. Now, this gives us a very interesting lesson that from time to time, and I would say this is a very unique thing that God might do, but that from time to time, God takes some really messed up people and uses them in remarkable ways. I think that's what he did with Samson. And uh, God does that in other situations as well. I don't think God commonly does it, but certainly Samson was not the last really weird, troubled, in many ways, unspiritual guy uh, that God greatly and supernaturally used. So, no, Matt, you're on the right track there. Samson's fall began way before the Delilah thing. Uh, the Delilah thing seems to be a sad conclusion to what happened there in his life. Okay, uh, next question comes from Leo. I love the Enduring Word app for my Bible studies. Right on, Leo. Happy to hear it. Um, Paul describes our Christian walk as a race. And Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. What is our part or agency in this race? And in what sense is faith up to us? I struggle with certain sins. All right, Leo, as I kind of discussed before, we all struggle with sin. And our, our prayer is that we would grow, we would advance, we would make progress in the struggle with sin that we have. And that's my prayer, my hope for you in the midst of this, Leo. But here's the thing. Listen, we, we believe that ultimately God has his hand on everything. God is almighty. In some places in the New Testament where that word almighty appears, it's the ancient Greek word pantokrater, which basically means the one who has his hand on everything. And that's God. His hand is on everything. Sometimes God's hand is on everything directly. And sometimes God is, has his hand on things through agencies. So God doesn't do an evil thing, but he allows an evil thing to happen. Okay, so we understand that. But Leo, at the same time, God has given to men and women real choice. 
the capacity to make real choices. We're not programmed like robots, and therefore the love that we give to God is free, and and we also have this situation where God invites us to work with him in the work of sanctification. Leo, when you were born again by God's Spirit, you didn't really have anything to do with that. Just as if when you were born in your natural birth, you didn't really have anything to do with that. It just happened to you. The agency for your birth happened with other entities, not with yourself. That's how it is when we're born again. God does it. He does it all. However, for you to grow in your Christian life, God wants to use your cooperation. So he works in you. He works through you to believe. God isn't going to believe for you. Work faith in you. But even there, you have the real choice to believe. God isn't going to uh, deny sin for you. He's going to work in you and through you. But you, through the real choices that you make, are going to grow in holiness. So, Leo, I would just put it this way. Ask the Lord to help you in your walk with him to work cooperatively in that work of growing in God's grace, growing in holiness. Say, Lord, you work in me and I'll make the right choices, the best choices, as much as I'm unable to. And then when you fail, choose to come to the Lord and receive his forgiveness and restoration, because those are real choices we make as well. Hope that's helpful for you, Leo. The work of Christian growth is a cooperative work that God does in the believer. He works with and in and through the believer to do this work cooperatively. Hope that's helpful for you there, uh, Leo. All right, we got two questions about Judas. One from Anahui, who asks, after Jesus's resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 reads, and after that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. How could he be seen by the 12, seeing Jewish Iscariot had killed himself? Ooh, Anahui, good question. Next question comes from Amy, who asks, I'll get to it, Anu, let me ask, read this other question about Judas from Amy. Hi, Pastor David, my question is about Judas Iscariot. What happened with him to turn his back on Jesus? Was he overwhelmed by guilt, and is that why he hung himself? Would I like your take on it. Okay, two separate questions. First of all, Anu, your question about Judas, why he was called about the 12, because, and we see this in a few places in the scriptures, I, I, I can't quote chapter and verse, but I just know it's present in a few places in the New Testament, where the phrase, the 12, is used as just a general description of the disciples without necessarily um, accounting that there were 12 present there. Again, I know that there's a few places, I wouldn't say several, but there's at least a few in the New Testament, where the 12 is just used as an identifying phrase without reference to how many disciples may have been particularly present. There's a couple other instances, I think one of them with one of Jesus's resurrection appearances, where uh, not in 1 Corinthians 15, but another one, where it says Jesus appeared to the 12, but we know there weren't 12 there, or there were more than 12 there. So, uh, yeah, that phrase, the 12, is just a descriptor of how many people are there. Um, 
Okay, the only illustration I can think of is a German illustration. Uh, sometimes they'll call the German national football or soccer team the Deutsche Elf, the German 11, because there's 11 who play. But actually, there's more than 11 on the team. But it's just a descriptor of the team as a whole. So in a similar line, that phrase is used. So I hope that answers that question there for you, uh, Anahui. Uh, for Amy, your question is, uh, what happened with Judas? Well, Amy, it's very interesting to find that in the scriptures, the only motive that's ever attributed to Judas is greed. That's the only one. The only motive ever attributed to Judas was greed. And he fell to such great regret after he received his money for payment. And I think what it was, was he did it motivated out of greed. He received his money and he realized how useless, how empty, how fruitless it was. And then he was filled with um, remorse. Now, there's a huge difference between remorse and repentance. Being sorry that you did something and sorry for the consequences of it are not the same as being sorry that you offended a holy God. Peter repented, Judas had remorse. And there's a big difference between the two. So both of them sinned against Jesus. But Peter repented, Judas was only filled with remorse. And remorse is not the same as repentance. So I hope that helps you there, Amy. Okay, uh, we're almost at 10 to the hour. Um... I'm going to answer this quick question from LNGL, uh, and then we'll, we'll announce the closing of our random drawing. Uh, LNGL asks, God bless you, Pastor Dave. Would you please recommend books for children or the books used to teach your children in your church for age groups 7 through 18? Look, we, we used uh, just Bible story books. We, we used um, the parables of Jesus. I, I can't remember the specific names. Uh, Little Visits with God is an old book that my wife's parents used to read to her that we picked up our own copy and we read it to our kids. So th there's tons of great resources for children. Um, I, I don't know if I have any great particular recommendation from uh, the books that we used because, look, th there wasn't anything special or unique about them. It's even almost just a, an excuse to start talking about these things with your kids. So sorry I can't be of more use to you there. You probably find somebody else and give you much better answers to such questions. All right, folks. I look at the clock and we are 10 minutes until the hour. As of my countdown, the entries will be closed for our entries. Five, four, three, two, one. Entries are closed. We're going to announce the winners at the very end. The one who wins our Enduring Word coffee mug. And the five winners for the book, Standing in Grace. So entries are closed. Uh, by the way, I do need to make this clear if people don't understand. Uh, if you're watching this recorded, we, we actually have far more viewers on the recorded version than the live version. But if you're watching this recorded, sorry, this isn't for you, the giveaway. So it won't do you any good to leave a comment with your screen name or location. It's kind of you to think of it, but entries are closed. That's it. We'll announce our winner in a few minutes. 
Okay, uh, let me get to a couple more questions here. Johan asks, Hi, are little children join in taking communion? From what age should we deny them communion and expect that they make a personal choice to be a Christian so that they can partake again in communion? Johan, it's an interesting question. Um, I think it's okay for you to serve your children communion if they have a sense that uh, this really represents and communicates to them the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his body and blood, and if they receive it reverently, honoring to the Lord, then I think it's a way that they internalize their faith. They receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would think it's okay to do that with your children once they're of age to understand that. And I would only stop doing it if they consciously reject Jesus. Then they could be barred from the table, so to speak. But if they don't consciously reject Jesus uh, or aren't in, in flagrant sin, I'm thinking of them being much older children, then I think it's appropriate uh, for you that they could share with your family as you celebrate communion that they would understand what it means that Jesus died for them in their place and that they would want to receive his work on the cross uh, communicated to us by his body, the bread, and by his blood, the cup. I, I guess that's the answer I would give. All right, here we go now. Uh, I think we got a lightning round here. Um, all right, Lucho. Are all the books of the New Testament applicable to us Gentiles? Lucho, yes, absolutely they are. Sometimes there's different application to the Jewish, but yes, the books of the New Testament are applicable to Gentiles. Yes. Uh, are oneness Pentecostals saved even though they don't believe in a triune God? Lucho, maybe. Listen, we're not saved by our theological precision. And there may be people who are just ignorant of the correct understanding of the Trinity and all they embrace is what they've been taught. But I'll tell you this, if a person consciously rejects the truth of how God reveals himself in his word, and I think that includes an understanding of the triune God, if a person consciously, knowingly rejects that, then I would definitely say their salvation is in question. But I could definitely see someone being in a oneness Pentecostal true church and being ignorant, uh, maybe being resistant to the truth out of ignorance, and them still being genuinely born again. So let's remember Getting to heaven, being saved, is not fundamentally a matter. I'm not saying this doesn't matter, but being saved is not fundamentally a matter of which group you belong to. It's fundamentally a matter of one's personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it needs to be the true Jesus, the Jesus that actually exists, the Jesus that exists in the Bible, not a Jesus that's the figment of somebody's imagination. Next question comes from R.J., Will God hold it against those who don't believe Jesus is God? Well, yes, but much the same answer I just gave to Lucho. Um, th there could be a rejection of the truth out of ignorance, and that needs to be better taught. But somebody who understands what the Bible says, or that the Bible tells us that Jesus is God, and rejects that truth, they're rejecting Jesus Christ himself. There is no Jesus who is not God who can save that Jesus doesn't exist. The Jesus that actually exists, the Jesus that can save, 
is God, according to the Bible. So if somebody rejects that Jesus, they're rejecting the only Jesus that exists and the only Jesus that can save. Hope that's helpful for you there, RJ. Alex asks, does the Bible talk about the role of pets and give instruction on how we should treat them? Alex, the Bible doesn't really talk about the role of pets, but it does give instruction on how we should treat animals. It puts it more in the terms of livestock, farm animals, that we should treat them well. We should treat them kindly. Uh, the Bible does say that in the law of Moses and also with the example of Balaam and his foolishness. So, yes, it does tell us how we should treat animals. We should treat them kindly. Uh, animals should not be subjected to unnecessary suffering. Um, doesn't mean that we can't kill them and eat them, but it should be done as humanely as possible. Uh, Matthew asks, there's a lot of mention of people tearing clothes in mourning. Is there a specific significance of this, or is it just an exaggeration to illustrate the point? Matthew, it was not an exaggeration. Uh, in biblical times, people literally tore their clothes as an expression of mourning. It was a expression that disaster had struck, and uh, I I'm going to clothes were much more precious. Almost everybody I'm speaking to right now has a closet full of clothes. I understand not everybody, but most of the people I'm speaking, you have a closet full of clothes. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. If you had more than one suit of clothes, you were doing really well. And so to tear your clothes was something you would do to express that catastrophe has come. Uh, things just aren't the same. And it was literally done in Old Testament times, in biblical times, the tearing of the clothes as an expression of tremendous grief and mourning. Uh, Tony asks, I heard you say before that you had some information or passages presenting Jehovah's Witnesses concerning their disbelief in the Trinity and deity of Jesus. How is this information obtainable? Tony, I don't remember specifically what I was referring to, I know that early in my Christian life, I had a great deal of interest in understanding what Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups that deny the deity of Christ, what they taught, why they taught it, how it was wrong. I, I, I worked very hard to understand those things. Uh, but Tony, as for good materials, listen, just go to, to some of the great materials that are online. Look up my friend Mike Winger on his YouTube program and uh, search for Jehovah's Witnesses on Mike Winger's channel. And I think he'll give you lots of great resources for that. I don't really think that we're featuring resources like that on our YouTube channel. Uh, as far as on our website, I don't know that there's Jehovah's Witness specific things, but certainly the passages that they use to support their doctrine should be looked through. Look through my teaching or my commentary on the Gospel of John chapter 1. I know that I specifically deal with the Jehovah's Witness approach in my commentary on that. So hope that's helpful for you there. George asks, why wouldn't Satan try other ways to get rid of Jesus other than just killing boys ages two and under through Herod? Well, George, how do you know he didn't? There's lots that happened in the life of Jesus that isn't recorded for us in the Gospels. You remember what John says towards the end of his gospel, that he just wrote some of the things. And if someone were to write out everything that Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain what he uh, said and did. So really, that's what we're left with here, uh, is that uh, there may have been many other attempts in the life of Jesus uh, for Satan to kill him. 
But of course, he was unsuccessful. Um, No, Jesus only died when he willingly laid down his life. Um, So, finally, here we go. A question from Shailan, who asks, Hi, Pastor David. A millennial pastor argues against a literal reign of Jesus, saying that he can't see how there can still be death and sin while he's literally reigning on this earth. Your thoughts, please. Well, uh, Shailan, respectfully, I would disagree with your pastor and just say that's what the Bible describes. Um, There was sin and death on the earth when Jesus Christ walked this earth as a man. I don't see why there can't be sin and death on the earth while Jesus Christ reigns over this earth. Listen, your millennial pastor believes that Jesus is reigning right now, and there's still sin and death. So I don't see really what the difference is. He's reigning over a millennial earth. And again, in my understanding of the millennium, which some people would disagree with, uh, there will still be a death and sin on the earth, though uh, people will live much longer, again, according to my understanding of the millennium, and sin will be judged and punished quickly. Therefore, uh, virtually most all the world will be believers. Um, or at least outwardly conform to the law of God and to Jesus. Okay, so that's it. That's the last question for today. I do believe that we've got some winners to announce. Uh, Maybe it's already been announced in the live chat, but uh, I do just want to say that I'm pretty confident that we have our winners communicated to us. And so uh, look in the live chat for our winners and what you need to do is you need to reply to us. Okay, here's our winners for today. Uh, Amy Monday, uh, Paul W., Shaylan Larson, Dave Briga, and Juan Carlos Batista. You guys all win a copy of my book, Standing in Grace. Please hang around so that we can get your postal address and uh, or give you the way to give us your postal address. And then um, Evie Clark. Congratulations, you won the mug. So Merry Christmas to you all. Uh, Very grateful that we can give away these gifts. And thanks to the team we have with Enduring Word and the tremendous work that you're doing. Now, I do want to say, finally, next week, don't forget, we're going to have my wife, Inga Lil, joining us for the Q&A. It's always a better Q&A when my wife joins us. You're not going to want to miss that. But thank you for joining us today. It's been a wonderful time together, and I hope that you can join us again next Thursday for our last Q&A before Christmas. And again, congratulations to our winners of the book, Amy, Paul, Shaylan, Dave, and Juan, and to Evie for winning the Enduring Word mug. Thanks again to the team for all that you do. God bless you, and thank you so much for joining us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.